I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. really cool because we're kind of like chipping away at the roster of cool doctors in Halifax. Yeah. Having them on the podcast. <laughs> Slowly taking your time, working through department by department. Hey, I got, uh, a, I got a great recommendation for a doc the other day. It's an un- unsolicited, uh, unsolicited uh, suggestion from somebody that I was riding, uh, that I was riding with. And, and I was like, ah, yeah, I do this podcast. It's called Sick Boy. And they knew, they knew the podcast was like kind of uh, peripherally. And you know when you know when you start telling people like what you do and they're like, Oh, have I got the thing for you? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, right, was it right. Liz? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't Liz. <laughs> well, that's who we are sitting down with today. Uh Dr. Elizabeth Randall, uh OBGYN and assistant professor at the Dalhousie University Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Um, we actually just recently had a colleague of yours on the show. Um and we talked all about uh, IVF and because Taylor, the reason Taylor's not here at the studio with us right now is that Kyla, uh, his partner and him have just, uh, they're, I mean, that baby could pop out while we're having this recording yeah, right I now. I could have to, I might, I might have to go. You might have, have to, to leave. dip. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, That's very exciting. <laughs> yeah. Very, very exciting indeed. And uh, uh, we, we've actually had a number of people recommend us reach out to you, Liz, to have you on the show. Um specifically to talk about something that we've talked about on the show quite a bit over the last six years, um, endometriosis. This, this thing that seems to be very common, um, but also is still, for me, a complete head-scratcher as to like what is actually going on in the human body when, when we're talking about endometriosis. So I guess to start it all off, um, uh, introduce yourself to our listeners and, and let us know Firstly, how did you come to become an OBGYN? What led you down this path to uh, to to study obstetrics? Sure, yeah. So um, I think uh, you know the introduction thus far is pretty accurate. I'm my name's Elizabeth Randall. I'm a, a generalist OBGYN at the IWK. I'm also an assistant professor to Dalhousie University, and I. Uh, started, yeah, I'm kind of down this path of specializing in endometriosis care a little bit by happenstance. Um, I took the same path to become an OB-GYN as uh, Dr. Mike Ripley did, who you spoke to a little uh, couple of weeks ago. So, you know, undergraduate degree, medical school, um, residency. I did my residency here at Dalhousie University. Um, and I was initially drawn to uh, the field of OB-GYN 
more so for the obstetric side of things, which I think is pretty common amongst medical trainees. You know, it's very exciting to be involved in delivering babies and bringing new life into the world and all of that. Um, but as I continue to progress throughout my training in residency, I realized that my area of interest are really lay more towards the gynecologic surgery side of things. Hmm. So when I finished my five-year residency, I did a one-year fellowship in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery in Regina, Saskatchewan, um, and worked with some uh, amazing mentors there. Dr. John Teal uh, was my primary supervisor for that fellowship, um, who has done a lot of work in the minimally invasive surgery world um, for gynecology and has a large volume of patients with endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain that he follows. And when I came back to the IWK, I was taking on um, a position as a full-time faculty member uh, following the retirement of one of the care providers at the IWK who did previously care for a large volume of the endometriosis patients here. Um, so it became sort of a niche area that I began to fill with my new area of training and expertise. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I take it, um, you know, there's there's no shortage of work, I guess, for you. Uh, something that I didn't actually know this until you um, until we were going through the sort of process of of booking you for this. But uh, one thing that you wrote in your in your application was that um, endometriosis endometriosis is common, which I think we kind of had an idea of, of that, like me, Taylor, and Brian. Uh, but I didn't realize it impacts approximately a million Canadians. Oh, yeah, that's. That feels really common. Like, that's kind of that's kind of wild. Um, the, the one of the things that like has kind of stuck out to us when we talk to people living with endometriosis is that, um, again, we're talking about something that's very common. But out of and anecdotally, out of all the all the instances that we have had with guests, one of the th- the kind of through lines through all those conversations, it seems like there's a real uphill battle for people to find a diet, like to be given a diagnosis of endometriosis is, is there a reason for that? Or, or did we just like kind of get lucky in that we've just managed to hit these stories that happen to be that way? Or is, or is it actually kind of a, a more challenging thing to, to give a proper diagnosis? Yeah, I don't think that that's a unique situation at all that you're describing. Um, certainly we know, in the literature would suggest seven to 10 years in terms of delay of diagnosis from patients first presenting with symptoms to having an official diagnosis of endometriosis and receiving um, treatment directed to the same. Um, anecdotally, some patients have struggled for much longer to be able to receive that kind of care. Um, the reasons why patients face that kind of delay in diagnosis, I think, are really multifactorial. Um, endometriosis is a very variable disease process. So um, patients can present with a variety of different symptoms. For the most part, some sort of pain symptoms, mostly sort of cyclic pain associated with some point of their menses, um, but also infertility, pelvic masses can be a presenting feature. And then the the symptoms that they're presenting with can, can be quite variable in terms of severity and overall impact on functionality. And so I think for those reasons, um, And as the symptoms change over time, over the course of someone's reproductive life, um, if they're left untreated for prolonged periods of time, I think it becomes a very challenging diagnostic picture for clinicians Mm. who aren't familiar with the disease. Um, Mm. As well, I think uh, traditional teaching has been that endometriosis must be diagnosed surgically. 
And those of us who work in the field of gynecology and see more patients with endometriosis have moved away from that traditional teaching that endometriosis must have a diagnosis made with a laparoscopic surgery and are more comfortable making a clinical diagnosis and not delaying endometriosis targeted treatments like the initiation of those treatments until you have a diagnostic surgery mm. um, so that we can avoid the morbidity associated with a mm. purely diagnostic surgical procedure. Mm. But traditional teaching still does uh, emphasize that. And I do find that some patients are still caught in a little bit of that cycle. Mm. I feel that uh, <clears throat> there's also a very large, or at least in, in the conversations that we've had, that there's a very big, there seems to be a very large social um, social aspect in terms of how these, how, how delayed diagnosis, diagnoses um, or how delayed a diagnosis ends up becoming in the way that, that just the, the sort of like general education that we get around, um, around menstruation and things as, as, as you know, kids and, and adolescents growing up just kind of lends itself to stigma and like a taboo nature that isn't necessarily as talked about as, as it, as it should be and could be. And then that sort of kind of kicks off the 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 delay of diagnoses that before mm. you even get to the medical aspect of how it could be how it could yeah. how that diagnosis could be delayed yeah i, I was going to ask i was going to say before before we did this podcast um as a person who doesn't have a vagina i had i had never even heard the term endometriosis and mm. anecdotally through the stories that we've we've heard like i and learning about how common it is i was i'm sort of surprised looking back in hindsight that i had never heard of it mm-hmm. before um hearing these stories. And so I'm wondering, because you know, like when you start talking about something and you learn a little bit about it, then you forget what it was like to, to know absolutely nothing about it. Mm. And I'm curious, um, for people with vaginas, like, is this something, do they know that endometriosis exists typically? Because from a patient advocacy sort of point of view, I think a lot of, um, the, the guests that we've had on the podcast who have gotten to a diagnosis have gotten there because they've sort of advocated for themselves a lot or you know the the time horizon in terms of how long it takes to get that diagnosis it seems to be greatly affected by how hard they advocate for um their their uh, healthcare process is that something that people typically know about going in like coming in to speak to an OBGYN I think by the time they come to me or by the time they come to an OBGYN they've least heard about the term endometriosis, but mm. I don't think that necessarily everyone coming to their primary care provider has necessarily heard about endometriosis. Like I, I don't think as a in the lay public, there's been a great amount of education regarding a wide variety of menstrual and reproductive health related conditions. Mm. Um, for many reasons, like a lot of those topics have been seen as fairly taboo. Um, and you know, you would there's long histories of everyone in my family has painful periods and, you know, we all just grin and bear it. And Mm -hmm. there's a normalization of that process. Right. And so for anyone to be able to make that diagnosis, a family care practitioner, nurse practitioner, walk-in clinic, eMERGE doctor, they still have, they have to know the problem exists. Right. And so if patients have normalized their pain to the point where they're not even bringing it up with their healthcare provider, um, at baseline, then that in and of itself is a problem. Not to say it's like the patient's fault or anything like mm-hmm. along those lines, but I think it's just as a society, there's been a reluctance to discuss 
yeah. many of these topics regarding women's health and, yeah. and reproductive and, health in general. I was going to say, yeah, exactly. Like, especially in the, in the, ter- in terms of reproductive health, I, I, I mean, to Brian's point there about like forgetting what it was like to know nothing of something. Um, can you, for the, for the folks that are listening right now, who perhaps aren't familiar with it, what, what endometriosis is exactly, can you kind of give us like a lay person's like walk breakdown of, uh, what is endo and like what's happening to the body physiologically when someone has endometriosis? Yeah, it's something that we can understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> dumb, it, dumb it down for me. <laughs> so endometriosis is um, a chronic medical condition where a tissue similar to the lining of the uterus is found outside of the uterus. Um, so part of the problem with understanding endometriosis is that the basic science regarding like why endometriosis happens and how it progresses and why it presents in different ways in different people just really isn't there. There's a lot of theories um, about how endometriosis starts and why endometriosis creates the symptom, you know, presentations that it does in different individuals, but none of them have really borne out to be definitive. Um, and for that reason, we don't really have a lot of really directed, targeted therapies to treat endometriosis. So I think a lot of the confusion regarding the diagnosis and how to make the diagnosis and, you know, from a patient perspective, how to make sense of what's happening to your body and put into context these symptoms that are happening on a regular basis. A lot of that confusion is there because we just don't really understand it. Yeah. In terms of, and this was something that I, like, I recall from the very first conversation we had about endometriosis. And and I think we actually got some like some feedback from listeners of people being like, well, I don't think that's right. Like you guys kind of fucked up there by saying that. And so, which happens uh, far it's too often. It's not uncommon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so, so, so for clarification there, what, what, one of the things that I heard you say, and, and please step in, correct me as soon as I, I'm wrong, uh, which is due to be very shortly. Um, uh, you, you were saying that, so it's endometrian cells that are presenting outside of the like the uterine wall is that is that is that how you you worded it yeah so the endometrium is the lining of the uterus and right. in endometriosis and that's the part where a pregnancy would implant and that's the part of the tissue that sheds on a monthly basis when a, a pregnancy is not there and you have a period yeah endometriosis is a condition where tissue similar to the lining of the uterus so not exact tissue of the lining of the uterus but tissue similar to the lining of the uterus is present outside of the uterine cavity. So it could be on the surface of the uterus, it could be on the surface of the bladder, on the bowel, on the ovaries, on the pelvic sidewalls, on the diaphragm, or there are case reports of it being even sort of more disseminated in, you know, lungs and brain okay. tissue and mm-hmm. so that was and- that was my question. I was like, could you have endometriosis in your sinuses? You know, like like outside of that area, how far like what are the bounds of of outside? But I, I but I suppose that it realistically it could it could appear you could have endometriosis anywhere yeah and so for that and we don't really understand why that is right so a lot of the theories around how endometriosis develop um retrograde menstruation is a very common one that people will speak to so we know vast many patients who have periods if you put a laparoscope inside their belly when they're having a period, you'll see some menstrual blood that's come back through the fallopian tubes and is in the pelvic cavity. And based on where we see deposits of endometriosis, most commonly it's kind of in these dependent areas, these gravity dependent areas in the pelvis. So maybe it's that retrograde menstrual blood that's just implanting and now forming these endometriotic deposits, but then 
you know, how do you explain the case report to people who have endometriosis in their lungs and they have yeah. what we call catamenial pneumothoraces. So they have like an actual like pneumothorax, like air, like a, a bleed in their lung or an air, area mm. of air in their lung every month with their menses. Like you didn't oh. bleed into oh, your wow. lung. Holy so, moly. What, what, what did, what did endometriosis, what was endometriosis before we knew or classified endometriosis as a, as a condition or as a, as a diagnosis? Like what, what would, what would it might've looked like for somebody to, you were a witch, c- come and explain <laughs> it was, this it, to the doctor. It was, <laughs> it was witchcraft, Taylor. We know this. We all know yeah, this. Yeah, right. It had to be dunked. <laughs> Which actually wouldn't even, would, would, given the history of women's health in medicine, that wouldn't no. necessarily surprise me. Um, but what, yeah, what does that, what does that look like for somebody before this was a diagnosis Ooh. to go and explain to their, try to explain to their doctor, like, this is what I'm dealing with. Uh, you know, on a monthly basis. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Um, I don't really know that I can speak to that. I, I think that, uh, I think the picture of women's health in general has changed over time. Like as we've moved towards more women sort of delaying fertility or limiting fertility, um, in general, um, I think many different, uh, gynecologic and reproductive, um, conditions have kind of changed in their presentation as you don't have women who are having multiple pregnancies throughout the course of their reproductive years, because a state of pregnancy is a very different state, Mm. like biologically, um, than a state of non-pregnancy. So not to say that that explains kind of everything, but if you have a patient population where you're not having a lot of a very, a, a large number of spontaneous cycles throughout a lifetime, then perhaps those individuals don't have as many issues with painful cycles when they do occur. Um, is, is that would like be one potential explanation? But is that like, and, and um, I might, I might be, and ultimately be asking you to sp- <clears throat> speculate a little bit here, which is what we do best. Um, <laughs> it, it, is that sort of the idea that when somebody becomes pregnant, you know, if you've got a population of people who are getting pregnant at you know, in their early to mid twenties versus their late twenties to early thirties or something like that, then, then is that because there's just such a fundamental, maybe hormonal changes that are happening like with pregnancy and then post-pregnancy and just how you function biologically after you've had a child. And if you've got a, a population that's getting pregnant further into the future, then you're sort of opening the door for more, um, kind of question marks to arise in, in people? Yeah, I don't know that I can kind of answer that question entirely, but I think we do know that disease processes like endometriosis are hormonally responsive. And so endometriosis symptoms for all patients will respond to levels of estrogen and your levels of estrogen change depending on your reproductive status, like where you are within your menstrual cycle, what kind of medications you might be on, um, and things like pregnancy. So um, a lot of the therapies that we utilize to medically treat endometriosis take advantage of the fact that endometriosis is a hormonally responsive disease process. And we try and reduce the levels of estrogen to reduce the stimulation to those endometriotic deposits and then reduce the subsequent inflammation that can mm-hmm. occur, um, which is the process that we think causes the symptoms in terms of pain and other long-term consequences with things mm-hmm. like fibrosis and adhesion formation and those other sorts of things that you can hear about and read about. Um, so in patients who are sort of changing their hormonal profile 
more naturally, for lack of a better word, by thing by engaging in things like pregnancy, um, you know, that's going to give you a different picture of symptomatology over the course of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one very sort of like broad explanation for why things might be different, you know, today than they were 50 years ago or 60 years ago. Mm. Um, certainly doesn't explain away all of it because there've always been women who are, you know, individuals who chose not to be pregnant or were not able to get pregnant in the setting of endometriosis. Many patients will also mm. suffer from infertility. So mm-hmm. certainly that patient population wouldn't be explained by this, yeah. but it's, it's interesting because it's interesting. Um, just, just to note that we're going to be talking to a, um, a demographer, I think that's what they're called, a demographer in the next couple of weeks. And it's all really around like populations and how populations have different behaviors over time. And one of those factors would be becoming, you know, on average in certain places, becoming pregnant at later ages and like kind of the knock on effects that that can have socially, medically, uh, economically and all that thing. So that's very interesting Mm -hmm. to know. Uh, yeah, um, so I don't think it has to do anything with like the rates of occurrence necessarily, or we don't at least have the evidence to suggest that. But from a pure symptom presentation standpoint, I think if you look at over the course of a patient with endometriosis's lifetime, the number of painful cycles that they experience being reduced by number of pregnancies that they may or may not carry would certainly impact how they may present in terms of symptoms. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. Kind of, uh, kind of in line with something that Taylor was just mentioning there. I, I can't help but think about how, you know. So we're talking about this this condition that is um, that is extremely common, uh, yet it's also a condition that takes years, oftentimes, for people to actually receive a diagnosis um, because of you know all of the different factors there, socially, you know, scientifically, yada yada, whatever. Um, what kinds of impacts does that have on the healthcare system as a whole? Like I, I can imagine that 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 kind of sort of taxes the the healthcare system in terms of of like in in, in terms of like a financial standpoint. Um, you know, a, an, an illness that is so common yet not so easily diagnosed and not so quickly diagnosed. Yeah, I mean, our more recent literature would suggest that endometriosis costs the Canadian healthcare system, or the Canadian, I mean, I guess the Canadian system, $1.8 billion um, in terms oh, of lost yeah. productivity, um, direct cost to healthcare um, yeah. for, you know, admissions, pain management, surgical procedures. So it certainly is a costly disease. Um yeah, I mean, wow. yeah. Jared, yeah. when I'm hearing you ask that question, are, are you are you sort of not suggest, I guess, suggesting that the idea around if, um, you know, if, as we become, you know, if we can theorize that into the future, you could cut the time to diagnose somebody in. Yeah. Yeah. Like that that there would be fewer referrals to people that can't actually help you. Sure. And you would get to that event. You would get to that quicker requiring 
you know, fewer appointments and like that kind of knock on effect of having such a cost. Yeah. Like, I I mean, I would imagine that like if there was, you know, if, 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 if we had some sort of plan of action that like really pushed forward, uh, you know, research and, and general education, um, and like even, even, you know, research towards like treatment, which we haven't even talked about yet, that that would likely, um, lift a lot of the a lot of the 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 pressures that that a disease like this is putting on on the healthcare system as a whole like Liz, financially you know Liz does that does what you said kind of at the beginning um play into that at all where you said that it 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 uh has historically been that it needs to be a surgical diagnosis like you you'd need to go in and actually find it surgically and remove it for to actually get that diagnosis versus um what you were saying before about just getting a clinical diagnosis before surgery is required Yeah, I think all of these factors interplay with one another, right? I don't think that you can kind of look at any one of them uh, in isolation. Certainly, you know, when we look at cost, there's a variety of different ways you can quantify cost as, as it relates to a disease process or an illness. So I think from a, from a purely like health economic standpoint, looking at, um, you know, number of um, primary care visits required uh, to deal with symptomatology, um, number of urgent care visits, which are going to be more costly than primary care visits, looking at number of specialist visits, because, you know, in terms of our our historic data regarding diagnosis of endometriosis, it's also required more than one visit to specialists, especially in the younger age categories in order to have a diagnosis confirmed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to start treatment, we know treatments uh, medical or surgical are not immediate in terms of providing relief. So then there's a, a delay in return to functionality um, associated with any of these interventions. And the first one you try may not be the one that's going to be the best option. So, you know, changing therapies, it's all, it's all related to, co- there, mm-hmm. there's huge costs associated with all of that. Mm-hmm. So I think any way in which we can expedite the diagnosis and therefore initiate treatment sooner um, not only will reduce some of that healthcare utilization and the costs associated with that, but also hopefully reduce some of the uh, more functional impacts to patient um, quality of life that we see as a, that can occur as a result of having undiagnosed pain for a prolonged mm-hmm. period of time. So patients with chronic pain, we know, um, are impacted in like many different aspects of their their ability, their roles that they play in their daily life, including, you know, family roles and um, roles at work. Um, so mm-hmm. impacting any of those to restore people to their full functionality sooner would be beneficial from a mm-hmm. cost standpoint as well. Speaking of um, quality of life and symptomatology, um, like obvi- obviously or the thing that we've heard a lot is is that the pain is, is one of the primary um, sort of things that affect the quality of life of somebody living with endometriosis. And uh, I know that you mentioned the inflammation, but going back to like describing how the endometrial cells can be found outside of the uterus, like how, how does that cause pain in the body and like, and what role does that play in getting the diagnosis? Yeah. So the role that the endometrial type cells like how they result in pain is again, probably somewhat unknown. I think from a basic science standpoint, 
Um, I think in general, we kind of uh, agree as a medical community that there's a process of inflammation that happens when those endometriotic deposits are kind of exposed to estrogen during the first half of your cycle, when your follicular phase, when your estrogen levels are high and your ovaries are trying to make follicles to ovulate an egg and they're producing a lot of estrogen, that tends to be when those endometriotic deposits we think are like more active. And then after ovulation, as those deposits kind of break down, um, when that estrogen level starts to go down again, um, they will release inflammatory like cytokines and create like a process of inflammation tissue damage. Um, and the inflammation that results as a result of that. And that's what we think causes that pain response to occur in, in individuals, but not every individual is the same. Like mm -hmm. not, no two patients, no two of my patients with endometriosis will have the exact same symptomatology. So some people will have, you know, pain that's very cyclic, really only with their menses. Some people will have symptoms that are primarily bowel. Some people will have a lot of bladder symptoms. Um, some people will have pain that's spread outside of their menses to pain with ovulation to daily pain. So I, I think it's really quite variable. And, and if we understood, I think better why um, and how endometriosis is doing the things that it's doing, then our treatments would be a lot more effective. Yeah, it sounds like you really have your work cut out for you when it comes yeah. to uh, <laughs> trying to navigate endometriosis. And, and to to that to that exact point, um, how how do you go about getting a or forming a diagnosis for somebody uh, without without going in and seeing that you know those uh, those cells and those deposits have 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 occurred. So we really do kind of rely on a clinical history. Um, so a classic history of pain with menstruation, uh, pain that tends to get worse over time. We have other classic features that we often will look for on history. So uh, pain with bowel movements, pain with urination, sometimes blood in the urine or blood with the bowel movements during your period, uh, pain with intercourse um, and infertility uh, all tend to be sort of the clinical things that we're looking for on, on patient history when we're asking questions. Um, there are some imaging findings either on ultrasound or MRI that can be suggestive of endometriosis as well, um, but normal imaging doesn't exclude the disease from occurring, from being there. So mm. sometimes we do have to rely on our surgical interventions when there's a question regarding the history. The history doesn't quite fit classically. Mm. Um, and we do have to rely on our surgical interventions to make that diagnosis and hopefully treat at the same time. Oftentimes mm. we'll also use our medical options for management as almost a diagnostic trial. So we can start a medication if we think, have a high clinical suspicion that there is endometriosis and we start an endometriosis specific intervention um, and patients improve, then we kind of have a diagnosis mm -hmm. based on that. Um, is that, is, is, is doing it that way as opposed to going to reserving the diagnosis more strictly for, uh, for when you've, once you've done surgery, is that, it sounded like when, when you explained that at the beginning, that that's, that that's, it's far less common to do it clinically versus, versus surgically. Is that, would that be true or? I don't know if I can speak to it being more or less common. I would say traditional teaching. Like if you look back to the textbook teaching in terms of how to make the diagnosis of endometriosis, the gold standard would be to do the laparoscopic surgery. Um, but I think from a practical, um, aspect in terms of you know, it's much, there's a limit to how many patients you can operate on. There's a delay to getting to the operating room. A family doctor can't take someone to the operating room and do a laparoscopic surgery to diagnose and start treating them for endometriosis. So I think from a practical standpoint, 
removing that barrier to say you can't start any sort of treatment for endometriosis, even if the story seems very clearly to fit with that diagnosis, is important to be able to mobilize those treatment resources to patients sooner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and that's and that seems like through our all of our conversations, it seems to be something that is gen that seems to be generally lacking, at least anecdotally in the stories that we've heard that you know and maybe that's just wrapped up in my idea that that you know people who deal with endometriosis you know have to wait years and years before they mm-hmm. before they get a diagnosis to be fair it sounds like solving the hardest wordle where like instead of five <laughs> right, letters yeah. it's like 20 letters long and yeah. instead of just one language it's every language in the world <laughs> i uh, uh i moving right along i um <laughs> i would love to know Guys, that was a funny joke <laughs> i would love to know what if you do um, wordle what currently like so you know you you get a patient that comes in uh tomorrow and you you go all right full on you are diagnosed with endometriosis we know this for sure um what are this person's options what are the things that they can that they can look at um in terms of treatment um uh because i mean is there a cure is there a cure for such thing as a cure for endometriosis I don't really talk about a cure per se. Um, endometriosis is considered a chronic disease um, of reproductive aged patients. Um, you, technically, like menopause is a cure to endometriosis. So once your ovaries are no longer producing estrogen, which is the driving hormone behind a lot of the symptoms related to endometriosis, then most patients with endometriosis will find their symptoms improve. Um, it's hard to kind of I mean, no one wants to kind of go around just saying, well, menopause is your cure, wait for 30 plus years and everything will get better. Um, Surgical menopause in terms of removing the ovaries is also sort of out there as definitive surgical treatment for endometriosis. And we can consider that, but certainly taking out the ovaries in someone who's young in their early reproductive years, isn't a viable option. Um, most of the time. So uh, we do have medical options. So we usually end up talking about medical options for management that are more so geared towards managing symptoms um, and improving functional quality of life um, until, until we kind of reach more of a natural end to the disease, which would be around the natural age of menopause. And what do those, um, what do those interventions look like? Yeah. So Many first line, many people will have had a first line intervention started for endometriosis, even without really kind of knowing that they have necessarily, and that's a birth control pill of some sort. So combined hormonal contraceptive. Um, it's not necessarily effective for everyone because it does contain estrogen. And we do know that estrogen um, tends to be the hormone that's being produced by ovaries that we believe is causing many of the symptoms. So sometimes that can prevent um, symptoms from improving fully, but is still considered a first line intervention um, for painful uh, periods and for endometriosis. And then other hormonal containing medications. So we usually focus on medications that contain higher levels of progesterone, uh, which will reduce the amount of estrogen that's being produced by the body. Um, and that therefore reduce the amount of estrogen that is being those endometriotic deposits are being exposed to. And then we have other options for medical management that actually reduce the amount of estrogen your ovaries are producing by by um, changing the signaling between the brain and the ovaries and wow. almost inducing in some situations like a medical menopause. So a variety of different medical options for managing that hormonal side of 
like the underlying physiology to the extent that we understand it uh, behind what's driving the endometriosis. And then we also have all the options for trying to manage the pain symptoms. So, you know, pain medications, anti-inflammatory medications, um, other sorts of pain medications that we can add on and lifestyle interventions tend to be quite helpful as well. So many patients will find that, um, for example, certain foods will impact their bowels more significantly and bowel pain can be very intimately associated with mm. endometriosis pain. And so changing their diet can improve some of the symptoms that they experience during their period significantly. So cool. it tends to be very tailored to the individual patient's yeah, presentation yeah. And, and needs. Yeah. Is there is, you know, in terms of like future, like the, 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 the future of endometriosis care, is there anything kind of bubbling on the surface right now that, that you have heard of or that you know of that like really excites you or, or that you, you are feeling quite hopeful about in terms of like uh, the advancement of, of endometriosis uh, treatment? Yeah, I don't think I have um, as I don't think I'm aware of any sort of like really new classes of medications or anything like that that are coming down the pipeline, but there are certainly different formulations of the current classes of medication that we have that are hopefully going to be available in Canada in the nearish future and will provide more options for medical management for patients with endometriosis. I think a huge area of growth in the past couple of years has been the uh, focus that's been put on an interdisciplinary approach to managing chronic pain. Um, with our, you know, opening of the uh, interdisciplinary endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain interdisciplinary clinic at the IWK, um, I think that that's a huge step forward in uh, providing, you know, quality care to patients that can address all these different aspects of their lives that are impacted by a disease like endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain. So, um, my personal, uh, you know, area of excitement is to see. Um, clinical services like that continue to grow and expand and, and provide quality care to patients. Mm. It seems like it, it just sounds, I, I feel like you could probably make this argument for, for pretty much anything under the sun, but anything that has to do that any, especially any treatment, like how, how important it is to balance, to, uh, to, to think about, you know, the, the way that hormones affect somebody. I mean, you know, you're, 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 you, you know, when you, when you give somebody a treatment that's going to change their hormonal profile and just like what the knock-on effects of that are, like just how challenging of a job that is, you know, from, from where you sit in, in, in your professional seat. Um, and, and just like how, how, uh, how delicate of a balance that can be for, for somebody to weigh, you know, what the, what they're going through versus the, versus the, the impacts of a treatment that will, that will change how, how they are hormonally. And, um, it just strikes me as a, as, as, as quite a, quite a challenge. Um, so good job for, <laughs> for, for taking on that response, that very heavy responsibility yeah. and, yeah. uh, and, and doing that work. It certainly is a concern that, uh, you know, a lot of patients do have regarding their overall well being. Like many patients will have had, a variety of different experiences with hormonal interventions in the past and for good or for bad. Right. So I think it's, it just also goes to speak to the, again, probably lack of information we have regarding how all of these things 
intertwined to create the patient picture that we see on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. In terms of an interdisciplinary approach, like is, is therapy um, an important part of treatment, especially considered the, the factor of like hormones changing? Yeah. So you mean like, like psychotherapy, that sort of thing? Yeah. Talk yes. therapy, that, yeah. yeah. So certainly many patients with chronic pain will have issues with uh, anxiety, depression, and other mental health related issues. And it's all of these things are a bit of a chicken or an egg. You know, I'm sure if there was an underlying, perhaps if someone has an underlying tendency toward anxiety, their interpretation of pain is different than someone who doesn't, but I'm sure that living in chronic pain doesn't improve someone's underlying mental health. Um, and not mm-hmm. being able to do the things that they want and need to do in their home and work lives must be very challenging. So I think that it's essential to have that uh, care provided in uh, an interdisciplinary setting um, mm-hmm. in some format. Yeah. 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 I was, I was thinking I, I had therapy this morning and I, the guys know I love talking about therapy, but uh, I no. was, I was having the thought this morning, like, like, how hard it can be even in moments of clarity to like understand, you know, to, to contemplate life and like where you're at and the things that influence, you know, why you make decisions. And, and so I was imagining like, wow, fuck, like for somebody who is, you know, experiencing like chronic pain or, or going like experiencing severe trauma, like how much harder it is to sort of cut through, you know, the heaviness of all of that to get to like, what what's what's really important in terms of like how your you know your behavior is affected and how your mental health is affected and so yeah thinking about that I'm like fuck man that's such an important part of a treatment process whether it's uh you know whether you're going for through treatment of a, a physical ailment or or you know something else mm. Uh, Elizabeth, this has been, uh, this has been really eye opening, and, uh, and I'm, I'm really glad that we got a chance to, uh, to find time with you and your busy schedule to sit down and, and talk about endometriosis from, from a clinical standpoint, uh, because, you know, it's, it, we, we get a lot of value in, in speaking to the patients about their experience, but, um, but there's a lot of stuff, uh, that, that goes, that goes missed when, when we don't have a chance to actually talk to someone who, who deals with these, these types of issues um, from from a, a clinical standpoint. So this has been uh, this has been a real delight, and I want to thank you for for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and, and chat with us. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for all the work that you're doing to highlight you know patients and their stories because I do think that's a really important piece of of increasing awareness and and advocating for you know patients and healthcare resources and knowledge in general. So thanks for that. Yeah, well, thank you. We'll thank we'll keep you. doing it for a little bit, I guess. Now that we got the go ahead from Liz, <laughs> every time we do an episode on endometriosis, we'll just have to send it to you, Liz, and then and then we can do a follow up after yeah, you yeah, can yeah. correct yeah. all the dumb yeah, things that we say. Can you just validate us, please? Uh, thanks, Liz. This has been really fun. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know? Tell someone that you love. 
Tell someone that you don't know that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.